Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. This is the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So what kind of research are you discussing today? In this episode, we are diving into the world of human genetics. And in particular, we are discussing a paper that aims to identify the genes that, when mutated, lead to developmental disorders in children. So what kind of developmental disorders? Would that be like autism or ADHD? Not exactly. Those are quite common and complex conditions. What we're talking about today occurs in about 2-5% to of children, and these are major congenital malformations and neurodevelopmental delays. And it's hypothesized that about half of these severe developmental disorders are caused by de novo mutations. What exactly are de novo mutations? It's just a fancy way of saying new mutations. That is, not ones that you've inherited from either of your parents. And every person has roughly 60 de novo mutations in their genomes, and the authors here employ a sophisticated statistical analysis to identify which of the de novo mutations that occurred in the children with these developmental disorders are responsible. To discuss the work, we have Vanita Agrawala, who is both a physician and a general partner here at A16Z. We cover how the authors set up their study to have sufficient power to identify these genes, what they tell us about developmental disorders, and how this work can impact patients and parents. This paper is looking to answer a pretty fundamental question, which is what is the root cause of developmental disorders? These are disorders that have pretty severe, significant effects on people and families. And in the majority of cases, we have no idea what causes them. In some cases, we know of of environmental risk factors, you know, things that parents do while they're pregnant or exogenous environmental factors. In some cases, we know about genetic causes. But the reality is, despite, you know, all the progress in genomics over the last several years, roughly 60% of these cases, we don't know what causes them. So what are the characteristics of how a developmental disorder presents? Developmental disorders are defined quite broadly. So they're severe chronic disabilities. They can be mental in nature or physical impairments. They're defined by the fact that they manifest before adulthood and that they continue to then have sort of indefinite effects on a patient's life in typically in multiple parts of their life. That could mean motor delays, language delays, global developmental delays, delays in social skills, delays in ability to reproduce, for example. So they can be very varied in their presentation. And this paper actually suggests that some of this long tail of undiagnosed developmental disorders might look you know, more different from one another and might be even harder to characterize, which is why they've been so elusive so far. Yeah, it's harder to identify the cause of a disease if the disease presents a lot of different ways. Let's talk more about the genetics of developmental disorders. We know that there's a genetic component to this. What kind of mutations do we know cause developmental disorders or genes that are involved or general uh, physiological pathways? So there are a couple hundred genes in which mutations have been well described as very likely to be the single cause of a severe developmental disorder. The authors describe those as consensus genes, where prior researchers have seen those mutations enough times in enough families to know that having this mutation causes this 
phenotype. That could mean a gene that's thought to regulate neural signaling or a gene that changes how the brain develops or how the heart develops. So there are a variety of mutations that have been mapped to these disorders. Uh, But then there are a lot of disorders for which we just don't know what that gene is. One thing that I found very interesting about this work was that it was only looking at de novo mutations. Let's start by talking about what a de novo mutation is and why they're specifically looking at this type of mutation for developmental diseases. A de novo mutation is a mutation that happened newly with this generation. So they could happen in the sperm, they could happen in the egg, they could happen at the time that these come together to form a new fetus. They're different from inherited mutations. They've been passed along for generations and are in the germline of lots of moms and dads, essentially. In developmental disorders, there's a strong hypothesis that de novo mutations might contribute to a large number of them because we couldn't tolerate them in the population from an evolutionary perspective. They're not able to become common mutations that are passed along through generations simply because patients with developmental disorders often don't have the opportunity to reproduce and pass forward these mutations. Right. A de novo mutation is something that neither parent has that has spontaneously been produced in the germline and is unique to that person. And that makes sense that developmental diseases would be linked more strongly to de novo mutations because they have a effect early on in a person's life so that it influences their ability to reproduce. Whereas like if you have a mutation that leads to Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's doesn't present until you're well past the age in which you would reproduce at. So those mutations can accumulate in a population, be passed down heritably. So now that we have this background on what development disorders are, the known genetic causes, and how de novo mutations are linked to developmental disorders, let's get into the experimental design and results of this study. How is this study designed to identify these new um, disease-causing mutations? So the authors creatively pulled together a quite large cohort of parent-offspring trios. So that is patients who have a developmental disorder and also both their parents. They went to three distinct sources and they pulled together exactly 31,058 trios, which for rare developmental disorders is a pretty monumental feat. And so they collected trios from three of these sources and harmonized the genetic data and the clinical data to create this very large cohort in which they could ask all these questions. Right. And the importance of having the trio is that since we're looking at de novo mutations, they were able to rule out any mutations that were seen in either one of the parents. So you mentioned that they were able to harmonize the genomic data from these centers and also the clinical data. What's the benefit of having that clinical data in a study like this? Yeah. So the clinical data is really key. The clinical data describes what exactly the patient's, you know, disabilities are, what organ systems are affected. That could tell us about which patients look more like one another and what, whether or not recurrent mutations in the same genes cause the same diseases. Yeah. Having the genetic data, you can obviously say there's a, there's a mutation here, there's a mutation there, but the clinical data adds that extra 
insight into what it means when those genes are mutated and puts the genetic findings into the actual context of the patient. So how do they manipulate their genetic data to find these mutations? Yes, they collected these mutational data sets via exome sequencing. So now they know all the de novo mutations that happened in every patient in this 30,000 plus cohort, right? So then the next question was to ask, well, which one of these mutations might be causing the developmental disorder? And so what they did is they came up with this test that the statistical test that they call de novo West, and it basically has three steps. So first, they assign every single de novo variant that they find a severity score. And this is a prediction as to how severe the variant's effect on the protein will be. Then for every gene across the genome, they add up all the variant severity scores in a given gene and come up with a gene severity score. So now you're starting to rank genes by how many damaging mutations were seen in the cohort. And because there might be lots of reasons why different genes have more mutations, maybe the specific sequences there are more likely to get mutated. Then what they do is they run simulations. So they run like a trillion simulations for every gene under models of evolution where mutations are happening. And then they ask, well, out of my trillion simulations where mutations are just happening by chance, how often do I collect this burden of damaging mutations that I see in my cohort. And then wherever their observation of a gene severity score is significantly different from what would be expected by chance under the simulations, that gene becomes a statistically significant outlier where they say, hey, this gene has a lot more damaging mutations in a cohort of developmental disorder patients than you would expect in a randomly sampled population cohort. And so they nominate that gene then as being developmental disease associated. So from this analysis, they identified 28 new genes that had not previously been associated with developmental disorders. So what did we learn about developmental disorders from identifying these genes? So I think that's actually where you know, the paper has both strengths and shortcomings. It's very powerful to have built the statistical engine and to most importantly have combined these data sets, as you said, so that they can all join forces to find genes that might be mutated pretty rarely. And hopefully this actually gives a diagnosis. On the other hand, the paper doesn't really leverage the clinical data very much at all. So as readers, we don't get to hear anything about what the conditions were that these that patients affected by mutations in these 28 genes have. We don't get to hear about whether they look like one another. We don't get to hear about whether some of those genes cluster together to produce a particular kind of, let's say, neurodevelopmental presentation. So maybe there's a follow-up paper coming, but I wish we had gotten a little bit more of a clinical sense of, you know, what these disorders actually are. Yeah. The one thing that I thought was interesting was that looking at the health data, they show that disorders that arise from mutations in these 28 genes are more heterogeneous than those of the consensus genes. And that's getting back to the same idea of if people all look different, it's hard to connect them together to name them as having the same kind of root cause. Yes. This is where it can get a little fuzzy-wuzzy. 
knowing what is similar phenotypically and what is dissimilar, it's pretty complex, you know, and we didn't get to really look under the hood for how they made that conclusion or, you know, what level of detail was available to describe the patient's, you know, developmental function and delay. So I believe them. And I think the argument is is real that part of the reason these genes are being discovered later in the game is that maybe they're causing a more diverse set of you know, presentations such that they couldn't be linked before. One of the last aspects of the results that I want to discuss is this estimate that they put forward that about a thousand genes are involved in developmental disorders, but we've only so far identified 285. So what is needed to identify all these genes? I think it's a provocative future statement, right? That maybe a thousand genes, so a pretty large fraction of your genome is potentially vulnerable to mutations that could cause developmental delays. I think the authors posit that primarily it's a sample size issue that would be needed to find this full set of genes and mutations. And so that's why the authors argue, I think, very um, appropriately in favor of sharing healthcare data. And they said, look, this study where we found these 28 genes would only be possible because we merged a diagnostic lab and a research study and a tertiary care center. And so, you know, it's a sample size issue. It's a diversity of sample um, issue. They, they mentioned the topic of clinical ascertainment bias. And so including more centers with more diversity of phenotypes will also help. Yeah, the other thing that they mentioned was the need to integrate genetic data from prenatal, neonatal, and postnatal studies because things that cause developmental disorders can also cause a fetus to be spontaneously aborted or death right after birth, you know, before it even gets a chance to be genetically sequenced. So we need to look, you know, not just at kids once they start to present developmental disorders, but actually earlier before it may even be recognized that the developmental disorder has manifested. Exactly. So at this point, you know, we've we've talked about these 28 new genes and how they connected them to developmental disorders. What are the key next steps for going from paper to practice with this research? How easy is it or difficult to integrate new genomic data like this into existing diagnostic protocols? Yeah, I think to some extent the difficulty in translation is always a function of the status quo. And I think this field has, for some time, been comfortable with not understanding exactly mechanistically the link between every de novo mutation and every disease. And so that's why there have there are this set of 200 or so genes that are likely to be the cause of a developmental disorder, even if we don't fully understand why. And as a result, diagnostic labs are providing that interpretation and that source of information to patients and their families already. So in some sense, because that's the status quo, I think this paper moves that ball forward, you know, even further. And for each individual center, they believe that somewhere on the order of 50 new genes have been added to that center's list. That being said, you know, I think it gets back to that same question of mechanism being potentially one of the most interesting biological learnings from this kind of data. And if you have enough granular clinical data on a patient's phenotype, we start to tie that into the genetic causes. We might start to see even more overlap with some of the even more common developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorder or, you know, ADHD or other conditions which affect over 
10% of the population. And these same genes might give us a clue there too. Interesting. You are a clinician. You see patients. How does knowing what the genetic mutation that's underlying a disease change your clinical practice? You know, especially this is brand new data. You know, this isn't going to change treatments because right now we just have a, you know, what's basically an extremely strong correlation between changes in this gene and a phenotype. So, you know, how does that change your clinical practice? And then also, how does that impact parents and, you know, maybe even the children? I would love to talk to some of the genetic counselors and clinicians involved in this study because they've really seen it up close as they've navigated even communicating these results to these patients in these cohorts. But what I do know is that I've met lots of patients and families who are on the hunt for a diagnosis. And as much as typically diagnosis is only useful, as you said, if you can actually do something about it and give a certain drug or change the disease in some way, I have met far too many patients and families who are just looking for an explanation. And I do think that that has value in and of itself because it gives people a sense of closure on this is what happened. And at least I can point to it and describe it and learn more about it and study it. And maybe, hopefully in the course of my lifetime, maybe we can do something about it. And so they are examples now of patients who have had quite remarkable and inspiring recoveries on the basis of intervention, you know, after a causal mutation was discovered via exome sequencing, just like it was in this paper. And so, you know, I hope in some of these cases there will be interventions, but I I wouldn't understate the impact of also just having diagnostic closure. I could see how that would be an important step for understanding your disease, even if it doesn't lead to, you know, a difference in your in your treatment regime. Just, you know, having that, like, I know what's happened to me or I know what's happened to my kid. Exactly. In many cases, you know, this could be the end of a multi-year diagnostic odyssey for a family and can be very powerful for that reason. Okay. So one question I had from this paper and, you know, when I saw the title, I thought this was something really exciting. 28 genetic disorders is the term that they use. And reading the paper, I realized what they found as, and what we've talked about is they've identified 28 new genes where mutations in those genes link to developmental disorders. But that doesn't feel like a disorder to me. Like what, is there like a clinical definition of a disorder you learn in med school or like, what's the connection between a disorder versus a causative mutation? Yeah, this is such a good question. And I don't think there's really a right answer. Um, I do think a disorder typically has, you know, two parts to it, a cause and a uh, clinical description. So, you know, it's a, a disorder. You could have, let's say, a blood disorder that causes you to have, you know, low levels of hemoglobin, or you could have a liver disorder that causes you to have dysfunctional metabolism. But what is difficult about calling these disorders is that we don't get to see really any of the clinical description of the phenotypes associated with these 28 genes in which there are mutations. So I would agree with you that I think this paper found 28 new genes, which for all the reasons we've talked about is still very important and very impactful clinically, but is is a little bit of a, a step removed from a disorder that that we could teach medical students about, for example. 
Yeah, it, our understanding of disease is really changing in the genomic era. So the diseases that we thought were one disease, we're actually realizing are a lot of different diseases that have different root cause, but they all kind of present the same way. And this is kind of similar where that we have this big umbrella of developmental diseases, but we're starting to realize that they actually, there's a lot of different things that can end up looking the same way. Our understanding of genomics is really uh, allowing us a more granular understanding of different diseases. But it still feels like there's something in between understanding a causative mutation versus, you know, a disorder. That just feels like a, a bigger step to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think you've also touched on, you know, what I would consider to be one of the big take-home messages of this paper, which is that how can we take a heterogeneous umbrella category and start to figure out all the different causes and in some cases shared pathways that might cause, you know, that diversity of phenotypes. And I, I think you're right. It's we're in the first inning of understanding developmental disorders precisely because we've clubbed them all together into this big category called developmental disorders of any kind, of any presentation. And so I think that's where we'll see, you know, this field continue to move forward as more and more patients you know, in the world are exome sequenced and we understand the cause of different phenotypes, hopefully we won't have to club the entire category together this way. Vanita, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club to talk about this new research. Thanks for having me, Lauren. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.